More than 100 years ago, it was the Germans who coined the phrase earworm to describe the experience of a song stuck in the brain. And you know what that is, right? Usually it's a fragment of a song, three or four bars, that get stuck on a loop and go round and round and round in your head. And so what song has been stuck in your head recently? Not sure why, but uh, I've been whistling the tune of the Andy Griffith Show for a couple of weeks now. Well, this week on Discover the Word, Daniel Ryan Day is going to tell us about a phrase that's been going around and around in his head recently. It's not technically an earworm because it's not attached to any music, but it really kind of acts like an earworm because it has been on a loop in his head for a while now. It's a Hebrew phrase from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Hevel, hevelim, hevel, hevelim, hakol, hevel. And in fact, he has a leather band on his wrist with the word Hevel on it. And uh, so why is that stuck in his head? Hevel, Hevelim, Hevel, Hevelim, Hakol, Hevel. And is it possible that as we study the book of Ecclesiastes together on Discover the Word in this podcast, that it'll get stuck in your head too? Well, only one way to find out. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And for the next two podcasts, Daniel Ryan Day is going to be leading Marta Hahn, Annalisa Morgan, and Bill Crowder in a study of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, part of the genre of wisdom literature. And as we'll discover, it is a different kind of wisdom literature than you may be expecting. But I think the difficult questions it makes us confront will make these conversations very worthwhile. So as I said, Daniel is the one who'll be leading Mart and Elisa and Bill through the memorable perspectives that Ecclesiastes holds. But in a lot of ways, Ecclesiastes also raises a lot of difficult questions. And so Daniel would like to begin this study with a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for um, the work that you are doing in me through Ecclesiastes, the work that I think that you want to do by unhinging us from all of the different things that we try to find meaning and purpose and value and identity in so that we can find true hope and meaning and purpose in you. And so I ask, Lord, that you would direct our conversation, help all of us to be honest with the questions and expectations and struggles that either we have now or that we've had in the past. So, Lord, we give this time to you and these conversations to you, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Daniel. And so now let's get started and discover why this term, Hevel, is stuck in Daniel's head and why it's such a key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. Is there a line from a poem or a lyric in a song that has been particularly meaningful or transformational for you. Maybe you read it a long time ago or you heard it a long time ago, or maybe it's something that you've heard recently, but it just really sticks with you. And while you're thinking, I'll throw a couple out so you have time to think. There's a poem that a mentor of mine gave me a long time ago called If by Rudyard Kipling. And there's one section in particular that I think about pretty often. And it says, If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there's nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. 
So those times in our lives where we just have to like keep pressing or pushing through. And then a song lyric that stuck with me is from Switchfoot. Life is short. I want to live it well. One life, mm. one story to tell. Mm. That's good. So those are two that have been meaningful to me. How about you all? Mm. Well, I have a certain fondness for song lyrics, as you probably know. And I've got a couple of song lyrics, one positive, the other negative. The one that's negative is from Don Henley slash the Eagles song, New York Minute, which says... Lying here in the darkness, I hear the sirens wail. Somebody's going to emergency. Somebody's going to jail. And it just kind of got my attention that anytime I hear a siren, somebody's day just turned bad. Mm. Either by their choice or not by their choice, uh-huh. their day just turned bad. That's good, Bill. Uh, and the other one is from John Lennon. In his solo career, he wrote a song about his baby boy, Sean. <laughs> and he has a line in it in which he says, Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really wise. It yeah. is. It is. Mm. Okay, mine's kind of silly, but the poem that I think of immediately came from second grade. It's by A.A. A. Milne, the guy who did Winnie the Pooh. And it's called James James. It goes, James James Morrison Morrison, weather by George Dupree, took great care of his mother, though he was only three. Hmm. And it goes on to say about how he wouldn't let his mom go down to town unless she went down with me, meaning him. And I thought, why in the world can I still remember that sing-songy poem? And I listened to it as I recited it in my head, and I thought, oh, I kind of felt that kind of relationship with my mom, like I needed to take great care of her. I had no idea. (laughs) It's such a light and fluffy little ditty, but it's got Mm -hmm. a deep... Yeah, that's what hit me immediately, because you have talked about your mom before. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The one that comes to mind is is a strange one. George MacDonald was a a 19th century author and preacher. And in one of his fictional works, there's this little poem about how things go wrong. It says, alas, how easily things go wrong. Uh, a sigh too much, a kiss too long, and then comes the mist and the falling rain, and life is never the same again. <laughs> oh, you know, I just mm-hmm. thought about why that hit me. Yeah, it's interesting. But I think the point is, a lot of times it's harder for things to go well sometimes mm-hmm. and easier for them to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard for them to go well for an extended period of time. Yeah. Eventually, it seems like they, they crater. Yeah. yeah. I love all these stories that we've shared because, you know, there's something so powerful about lyrics or poems. And I think part of it's because things are just said so well, so succinctly. The poet or the artist has really thought through how they want to communicate this idea. Mm -hmm. There's often metaphor involved or some kind of word picture that helps you grasp what they're really feeling or thinking Mm -hmm. as they process that. So today, as we begin this new series... I want to get another lyric or another line from poetry stuck in our heads. (laughs) I think it's one that it's been particularly meaningful to me, but I think it's one that if we truly grasp this idea, if we carry it with us, it's one that really has the opportunity to change our lives for the better and at least help us make sense of the world a little bit more. But to do so, we're going to have to play with some Hebrew words, because as helpful as English translations can be, in this particular instance, the English can get in the way a little bit of us seeing the poetry for this particular verse. 
And so we're going to read it in English as well. But first, I want you to hear it in Hebrew. And so this is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 8, which I think that's significant, but we won't talk about that for a few conversations. And the verse goes like this. Hevel Hevelim Omar Kohelet. Hevel Hevelim Chakol Hevel. Did you hear the sound repeated? No, like one, two, three, four, five, six yeah. times or let me, something. Yeah. Yeah, let me read it one more time. And I, I'm gonna skip the, the two middle words so that you just hear the uh, sound. Hevel Hevelim. Hevel Hevelim Hakol Hevel. So you get that the clear your throat sound. It's kinda of like the opposite <laughs> of rolling your R's, right? Yeah, that's you know, right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that word hevel that just got repeated over and over again uh, is the word vapor, or it can mean like puff of air or smoke. It shows up 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a pretty small book because it's only 12 chapters. In fact, it only takes about 40 minutes to an hour to read the whole book. Um, but this one little word shows up over and over and over again. But in English, vapor, smoke, puff of air isn't typically what we see. And so I thought it might be helpful to just go around and read what each person has in their yeah. translation. Elisa, maybe you could start? Sure. In, in the NIV, it's meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Well, that's encouraging. <laughs> yeah. So instead of hevel, puff of smoke, vapor, we have meaningless. Okay, yeah. Bill? Okay, mine's the New American Standard, and it's Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And uh, Daniel, in the margin of my NASB, it gives an alternate translation. Futilities of futilities, all is futile. Yeah. So we've got meaningless, we've got vanity, we've got futility. Those are three options, Mart. I got another meaningless. I got the New Living Translation. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. I looked it up in my wife's Spanish Bible, and they translated it as absurd, the Spanish word absurd, uh-huh. which was interesting as well. These are all interesting words. What really jumped out to me as I was kind of exploring this was all of those are interpretive translations. So they're taking the idea of smoke or vapor, and they're trying to figure out this is what the author meant by it. But I think what's most helpful is for us to think of it as actually smoke or vapor, because Mm -hmm. then it gives us that poetic feel that we talked about with our song lyrics and our poems at the beginning. Because if you think about some of these words, think about how we might take it today. So the word meaningless, for example. As you're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, if you see meaningless 37 times, you start to get this sense that the author has looked through the whole world and he has found that there is no meaning. But as we'll see as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, actually the author does believe that there is true meaning and purpose. And what he's hoping to do is show us some of the things that we try to find meaning in that don't give true meaning. And so he very much believes in meaning. And so for us, it could just make us think that there is no meaning in Ecclesiastes, um, which is Hmm. kind of the opposite of what I think he's trying to get us to. Or the word vanity, what comes to mind when you think of vanity? Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair, yeah. It sounds like pride. I think of Carly Simon, you're so vain. I think about sitting at a vanity and putting on your makeup. Mm. That's what it says to me. Yeah, so it's kind of a confusing idea because those are like competing ideas. Are we looking at something and reflecting back on ourselves, which might have been maybe what they intended? Or what is this vanity idea? But when we think of it as like puff of air or smoke, 
it kind of brings a little bit of different nuance. And what we're going to find as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes is there's two primary ways that the author is using this idea. Uh, And the first we kind of see in chapter 1, verse 8, specifically in the second half of the verse. Uh, Would somebody read that for us? Sure. It says, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Yeah, so picture going to a great concert, and the next day when you wake up, the day after the concert, do you think to yourself, like, I already heard enough music. I never need to go to a concert again. No, of course not. That was great. It was meaningful, but it was fleeting. It was enjoyed, and then you wanted more to enjoy, or a great movie, maybe. Let's read chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, and we'll see another side to this. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. And then in verse 11, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Daniel, don't you think that the way vanity is being used here is in the sense of it's all in vain? Yeah, yeah. And so that's that fleeting nature to that word hevel. Um, I was thinking, especially in that verse, because it's related to the word toil or work. It's like those days where you put in a whole day of work and you get to the end. You're like, what did I even do today? Did I get anything done? Maybe you're stuck Mm -hmm. in emails or something like that. (laughs) So that's the first way that the word is used. It's like this fleeting. The sun comes up and it goes down and then it comes up again. The wind blows this way and that way and then comes back around the world again. Everything is moving. The second way the word hevel is used is picture trying to grab smoke or grab vapor. What happens when you try to grab it? It vanishes. Yeah. yeah. Pulls apart and disappears. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of like slips through your fingers. You can't really like form smoke in your hand. You can't grab a hold of vapor. You can't catch a puff of air. It kind of like slips through your fingers. And so one of the ways that the author uses it, and this is actually the primary way, is to set up these paradoxes, these enigmas, these unanswerable questions that we run into. A great example of that would be if someone could read Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. I've seen everything in this meaningless life, including the death of good young people and the long life of wicked people. Whoa. So in that verse, what we see is one of these paradoxes, one of these enigmas in life. We look at it and it just doesn't make sense. That's Hevel. In my translation, it says, there are righteous people who perish in their righteousness. So they have this seemingly good relationship with God. They seem to do the right things and they die young. And then I look and I see someone who is doing all the wrong things and they don't have a relationship with God and their life just keeps going on and on again. How do I handle that? I, don't, I can't get my mind around that. That's hevel. It's like grabbing after smoke or grabbing mm-hmm. after a puff of air. So those are the two primary ways that we see the word hevel used. And we're actually going to return to that word at the end of our conversation because of how important it is to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. But before we end this part of the conversation, I thought it would also be helpful just to remind us of uh, when we started this, we talked about how it's chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 8, which is the end of the book. This idea, not only does this word show up 37 times, but the author is bookending the whole book with the same verse, hevel, hevelim, hokal, hevel 
right? So like everything is this smoke, this vapor, as we're trying to make sense of the world. Bruce Waltke, who's someone who's been on with us before in the past, he said that unquestioningly, Hevel is the most important term to understand what's going on here, the clue to the Kohelet or the teacher's teaching. And so as we go through this series, I want us to think about just how powerful poems and song lyrics are, and specifically this lyric for us, this idea that everything is smoke, everything is vapor, everything is this puff of air. Get that picture in your head, and as we explore the book of Ecclesiastes, let's see how often we come back to that idea. So I was working on outlines for this discussion, and I was having a hard time focusing because I was working from home in my office, and my kids and their friends discovered sound effects on my keyboard. (laughs) And so as I'm sitting there reading the Bible, I'm hearing explosions and screeching cars and machine guns and weird yelling coming from the room next to me. And I realized if I closed my eyes you would be transported to a haunted house with a laughing clown who was in a machine gun fight with the mafia. (laughs) And it was just amazing to me how sound effects can paint this whole picture Mm -hmm. in your Mm -hmm. mind. Mm -hmm. You know, they can create an entire reality around Mm you. I was curious if any of you have a similar type of situation, maybe going to an IMAX movie or experiencing surround sound for the first time or something like that. Maybe you ate something and it transported you back to grandma's house or something. What are some of those experiences that you've had? Well, I remember Haddon who said radio is the theater of the mind because you hear things and it creates pictures in your head. Mm -hmm. So it sounds very similar to what you're describing, only I'm not sure I'd want to go to that haunted house. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm thinking of a a lot of different things. I'm thinking about after crazy days like the one you just described. I remember putting my kids down when they were toddlers and just sitting on the stairs and listening to the silence. And I could hear echo back various conversations, some pretty good, some like "Mm, not, not a great mothering moment, you know, through my being, I could just hear them again. And (laughs) they would take on a different perspective as I listened in the quiet. Yeah. The only thing that comes to mind is trying to go to sleep on the 4th of July. <laughs> I'm saying, I'm so tired. I want to sleep. And uh, man, our neighborhood just lights up, you know, until well into the morning. That's good. That's See, I live good. in the country, so that experience happens on many nights, not just the 4th of July, but I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, as I was thinking about that and hearing all those sound effects and I'm transported to this haunted house in my head, I was thinking about how, you know, as Christians, we actually live in mixed realities, you could say. And what I mean by that is there's a true reality. There's the way God sees us, the way God sees the world, the way God created things to be, the fact that God's kind of holding it all together. Colossians described it specifically around Jesus as saying, in him, all things in heaven and earth are created things visible and invisible, and in him all things hold together. Mm -hmm. There's this reality, God's reality. Mm -hmm. But we don't see that reality clearly. We often see, as uh, Paul described in Corinthians, we see in a mirror dimly, right? We only see a part. Mm -hmm. But what we think we see clearly, the reality that we think we see clearly is the world around us, right? Mm -hmm. What we see, what we touch, what we smell. And one of the fascinating things that I find uh, as I read the story of the Bible 
is that over and over again, God interrupts that reality that we think is real to introduce us to his reality. It's like he's turning off those sound effects and reminding us of what's really real. And specifically, as I've been thinking through Ecclesiastes, thinking through what wisdom literature is in the scriptures, I wonder if that's perhaps a helpful way to think about what the role of wisdom literature is in the Bible. It's God turning off the sound effects and helping us maybe see things a little more clearly the way that he sees them. So as a part of wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes is, is one, of the, one of the writings, and specifically along with Proverbs and Job and a few Psalms, there's this collection within the writings in the Old Testament called wisdom literature. And one of the primary characteristics of wisdom literature is this idea called the fear of the Lord. It's a phrase that shows up over and over again. And just to give kind of some examples of that, could somebody read Proverbs 1.7? Sure, I've got it. It's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Yeah. And then let's turn to another wisdom book, Job 28, verse 28. Somebody read that for us. Yeah, I've got it. And he said to humankind, truly the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Yeah. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. It says... Verse 13, well, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God, obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. Yeah, thank you, Mart. And what's interesting is what you just read is actually a very surprising moment in the book of Ecclesiastes because we don't see the commandments show up much in the book. We see some allusions to God giving the gift of life. We see some allusions to God being a judge judging men's motives, but we don't see this theme that we see in some of the other wisdom books of if you follow God, if you do all these things, then good things will happen. But I still think it's important for us to recognize that's probably what's in the back of the author's mind of Ecclesiastes because he is coming out of this wisdom tradition of Proverbs, of Job, where the fear of the Lord is connected to first the law and the commandments and the ordinances. And we'll read a passage in just a second that is probably the passage that would be in the back of his mind. And then secondly, what we'll see too is that the fear of the Lord is connected to emotions of like real fear of this being is bigger than I imagined. Like Mm -hmm. I just met God in some way and that scares me. Can you think of any examples of that where that initial reaction is fear? Well, Moses at the burning bush, maybe? Yeah, Yeah, I think of Jesus in Revelation 1 where he appears to John on the Isle of Patmos and Uh, When John sees him, he says, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Yeah. Yeah, there's this aspect of fear of the Lord where there's almost like a literal emotion of fear. And it's because Mm -hmm. we're coming into contact with this being that is so other, so incomprehensible. But what's amazing about the story of the Bible is very quickly that fear leans into both trust and love. Trust because we realize that this being that is so other from us that could be terrifying, we find out is actually working on our behalf is on our side. And then how that leads into this love relationship with God, where the fear of the Lord leads to loving God and to loving others. And again, I promised a passage where we can kind of see some of these come together. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter six together, verses one through six. 
And I think we'll see commandments and the law and obedience and hearing from God. But I also think we'll see words like heart and loving the Lord your God and the relational aspect as well. Mm -hmm. So, Elisa, would you get that started for us? Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I'm commanding you so that your days may be well with you. Yeah, so if we just pause there for a second, you can already hear fear of the Lord, keeping the law and commandments connected in some way. Let's mm-hmm. keep reading in, in this section, listen for the heart and words like love. Deuteronomy 6, verses 3 through 6. Bill, will you pick up there? Sure. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently, so that it may go well with you, and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Yeah, so do you see those kind of two ideas there? So the first being connected to commands and ordinances and the law and hearing God's invitation and following him. And then the second part being the like, oh man, God sees things differently than I do because he's God. Uh, But that leads into this trust and in this love relationship where God is inviting us to follow him and to trust him because he's looking out for what's best for us. Kind of interact with that a little bit. How does that strike you when we think about that big term fear of the Lord? We can just focus on obedience so much that we're not putting our heart in it. We're just going through mm-hmm. the motions and that can't be right. Yeah. I think that's why these two pieces of wisdom go together because you have the commandments and the law and the ordinances trusting that God's inviting us to follow him, but then also equally is the heart by which we do that, right? It's Mm -hmm. an invitation into relationship, into trusting that this God who's other is trustworthy and looking out for what's in our best interests. And the Old Testament's full of examples of places where Israel was following God and God tells them, stop giving me offerings and sacrifices because you're doing that but your heart's not in it. Yeah. Well, the first thing that it came to my mind, Daniel, is the element of it that, that you haven't gone to yet, and I don't know if you're going to, but I've always understand the fear of the Lord to speak of reverence for God. Yeah. And I'm hearing how that could dovetail into these things, but not that intentionally. Yeah. seems to me that at the, at the center of that bill, it has to be something like God needs to get our attention. Yeah. Because only when he has our attention can he lead us to a place where we end up realizing, oh, and and he deserves to be trusted as well. Mm-hmm. But first we have yeah. to kind of like be broken out of our, our normal way of thinking about just what we see. Yeah. yeah. I think that's so good, but we tend to separate. I think Daniel might be your point. We tend to view it all or nothing. It's like we either are going to fear him or we're going to love and trust him. And it's confusing to us, and I don't think we've been well taught Hmm. to do both. You know, because he's got our attention, because he is so other than us, we can then draw close to him because he's trustworthy, and therefore it's safe to love him. It's a really weird combination. Mm -hmm. And as humans, we're not we're not really great at holding that kind of tension. Yeah, we don't we don't begin to see it Mm -hmm. until he has our attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And probably the only parallel, and it doesn't apply to everyone, obviously, but the closest parallel would be a child and how they respond to their parent. Mm -hmm. Because in a healthy parent-child relationship, there should be a certain amount of respect, whatever you want to call it, but also trust and love for that parent. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that really jumps out to me in the story of Job, which is, again, the book of Job is one of these wisdom literature books in the Old Testament, is the way that book ends and specifically Job's reaction to God after God shows up and mm. like goes through all of these different things that God has done and could be a very terrifying moment for Job. But the whole point is God grabbing yeah. Job's attention And specifically, Job ends by basically saying, I had heard of you, God, before, (laughs) but now I've seen you. And Mm. as a result, I'm not going to say anymore. Mm. And so he's been questioning God. His end result of running into God's presence was, man, I am seeing reality for the first time the way God Mm. sees it. And as Mm. a result, I'm going to trust God. And that leads to a sense of humility that I think I know I struggle with and as Christians is an important part of what it means to walk with God is that humility that God sees more clearly than I do and that I need to trust him uh, because he's trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And so as we continue in this conversation on Ecclesiastes, one of the things that I would ask us just to invite God to do is turn off any other realities in our lives, the sound effects, the food that took us somewhere else, whatever it is that the Lord would show up and turn off the sound effects and help us to see reality the way he sees it. And I think what we'll discover, especially as we go through some really uncomfortable sections in Ecclesiastes, is God kind of breaks down maybe some expectations we have of how he's supposed to work. As we go through some of that discomfort even, what we'll discover is that we do serve a God who's trustworthy because he is bigger than anything we could imagine but he's also working on our behalf. And as a result, I think this book really sets us up to hear God's invitation to walk in relationship with him and to trust that he is good and he's worth following. All right, so as we discovered in our first conversation, the Hebrew term hevel is going to be a key to understanding Ecclesiastes. And now in that conversation we just had, we've seen how important it is to keep in mind that Basically, all the wisdom literature in the Bible starts with the fear of the Lord as its foundation. Putting together some of the building blocks for our survey of this important Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Here at the table with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And we'll talk more about the Bible's wisdom literature and why Daniel calls Ecclesiastes the glass half-empty of wisdom literature. That after this quick timeout. Discover the Word is part of Our Daily Bread Ministries, a multifaceted ministry with the mission of making the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And we do that via radio and podcasts, via devotional material like the Our Daily Bread devotional, other print and internet-based Bible study materials, videos, music, and books, and Our Daily Bread University. Our Daily Bread University is a premium provider of free biblical online courses to students around the world. Whether you are new to studying the Bible or a seasoned Bible student, we 
have something for you at Our Daily Bread University. And this week, as we study Ecclesiastes together on this podcast, I'd like to invite you to enroll in a free course called Old Testament Basics. This course looks at all the books of the Old Testament, including the Wisdom Book of Ecclesiastes, to help you understand how all the different kinds of literature contribute to the story of the Old Testament, how they fit together, and what lessons can apply to our lives today. So start your free Old Testament Basics course today from Our Daily Bread University. When you click on the link at discovertheword.org or you can go to odbu.org. And now Daniel and Mart and Elisa and Bill talk about what kind of wisdom literature Ecclesiastes is. So we had a conversation last time about wisdom literature in the Old Testament. What are some books that are included in wisdom literature? Uh, Proverbs. Mm Mm-hmm. Job. Yep. I think you said some of the Psalms are considered mm-hmm. wisdom literature, but maybe not all of and them. And that confuses yeah. me because I always thought they all were. But, you know, we've spent some time in Psalms and the various books. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's Ecclesiastes, which we're spending a lot of time talking about. And I think part of what makes some of those Psalms wisdom Psalms, Elisa, is the idea we were talking about last time, which is kind of foundational to wisdom literature in the scriptures. And this is what makes wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible stand out. And it's this idea of the fear of the Lord, which we kind of described last time in our last conversation. Daniel, which is one reason I'm so glad we're talking about Ecclesiastes, because it seems so unlike all the mm-hmm. other wisdom literature. I mean, and if somebody expects yeah. to go to Ecclesiastes and find a whole bunch of just good insights and a lot of good truths, it's uh-huh. kind of like, hey, wait a minute, this is one piece of wisdom literature. It, it should have a warning label or something yeah, on it, right. you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually in some ways why it's one of my favorite, <laughs> because it's so unexpected. And in fact, we're going to lean into exactly what you're talking about, Mart, which is how does Ecclesiastes fit? How is it different? How is it unique with some of those other pieces? To kind of set it up, I'd like us to read a proverb, actually two proverbs that I have pulled out ahead of time. Proverbs 1.5 and Proverbs 24, verse 5. So maybe, Elisa, if you'll read Proverbs 1.5 and Proverbs 24.5, maybe, Bill, if you could grab that. And while you're turning there, Think about the role of Proverbs specifically in wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It's the positive role, right? Like it gives a pretty ideal look on the world. Do these things. Great things are going to be happening to you if you do these things. It's just going to be great. And you could kind of say that it's the positive person, right? The glass is half full in Proverbs for the most part. And we'll see that in these two. So Proverbs 1.5. Let the wise also hear and gain in learning, and the discerning acquire skill. Yep, and Proverbs 24, 5. Wise warriors are mightier than the strong ones, and those who have knowledge than those who have strength. Yeah, so... That sounds like the pen is mightier than the sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so be wise, gain in learning and understanding. And even if you're in a battle with someone stronger than you, because of your wisdom, you're going to win, right? Like mm-hmm. this is this is positive. Mm-hmm. And we take them as a promise kind of thing, but yeah. And that's why Ecclesiastes is helpful. Let's read Ecclesiastes one eighteen. So Proverbs just told us to increase wisdom and knowledge. And this is what Ecclesiastes one eighteen says. 
For in much wisdom is much vexation, and those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Wow. <laughs> and really, the whole book of Ecclesiastes, it seems like, is like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just it's, puts you off balance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so if Proverbs is like, hey, the glass is half full, Ecclesiastes is like, is it? I'm pretty sure it's half empty, right? Like that's kind of Ecclesiastes' role. Here's another great example. Someone read Proverbs 24, verses 3 through 4 for us. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Oh, yeah. Can't you just hear that beautiful soundtrack behind that verse? (laughs) Pleasant riches, like things are going great. And here's what Ecclesiastes has to say. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 20 through 21. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. There's another verse from Ecclesiastes I'll read as well that's connected to these. This is chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to the skillful, but time and chance happen to all. (laughs) So you have Proverbs describing Mm -hmm. this beautiful picture of increasing wisdom, increasing knowledge. Your house will be filled with all these amazing things. And then Ecclesiastes is like, eh, I don't know about that. (laughs) Ecclesiastes ought to be an appendix to Proverbs, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So just based on those few examples, if Proverbs is playing this very positive role in wisdom literature. What is the role that Ecclesiastes is playing? Well, I think you talked about half empty, which is kind of like pessimism. It's like, well, maybe even it's a reality check. But but Daniel, why isn't there a warning? (laughs) Why isn't there an introduction to this piece of wisdom literature? You know, the Bible never gives us those things, Mark. We never have. And this is what I really meant. So when you read it, think about this, and then you'll know exactly what I meant. Yeah, but people are told this is the Word of God. Well, you think Mm -hmm. the Word of God... It's going to be true. And the whole thing needs a warning is all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Okay. And just because it's maybe from a different perspective, it's still looking at life accurately. It's still true. It's just taking a different perspective or, or maybe looking at a different season of life because all of us have those proverb seasons where everything's looking good and going well. And then we have those darker seasons where things aren't as good. That doesn't mean the scriptures are any less true in those moments. It just means you're looking at a different thing. I I hear you. I hear you. But the teacher Mm -hmm. says meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And he keeps repeating. We don't see that on a plaque, do we, Mark? Well, he he says it's a smoke (laughs) or a vapor. Uh, I think the translator said it's meaningless. I think sometimes we need to know in life that the cup is half empty, right? Like if you're driving Mm. a vehicle across the country— and you get to one of those signs that says it's X number of miles till the next gas station, if you're like, oh, my tank's half full, I can make it anywhere, it's you're going to run out of gas halfway yeah. there. But if you know like, no, it's it's half empty, I better go ahead and fill up, then it it's that little bit of extra perspective mm. that's helpful. It paints the whole picture. But would Jesus ever say meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless? To Bill's point, though, I think that's where we have to be careful with which word that we're talking about, because all the author of Ecclesiastes says is that it's smoke or vapor. 
something that's passing. It's something that's hard to get our minds around. He never actually says it has no meaning. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes seems to think that there is a God who brings real meaning. And if nothing else, then we try to find meaning in the wrong things. And I think that's part of maybe what we're finding in these sections too. But we're not done yet because we've got Proverbs, we've got Ecclesiastes, probably should look at Job as well, because Job is the other piece of wisdom literature. So if Proverbs, you know, states the ideal, so righteousness delivers from death in 10.2 of Proverbs, the one who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward, chapter 11, verse 18 of Proverbs. So glass is half full. And then Ecclesiastes comes in and says, I've seen people who do the right thing, who die young, and people who do the wrong thing extend their life. So glass is half empty. Job, the glass is broken because the whole story of Job is that you have the most righteous person on earth. That's how the book sets up the Mm. story. And everything bad in the world happens to Job. And he thinks God hates him as a result. So how does that strike you? We have this picture of positivity. We have this picture of pessimism. Then you have this picture of Job which is like, if you really think Proverbs works, Mm -hmm. look at all my buddies. They came and quoted Proverbs to me and that didn't help, (laughs) right? So you you just get this much more complete picture of of wisdom in the scriptures. By the time you get to the end of the book. Yeah, and maybe that's part of the answer, Mark, to what you're pushing into as well, is we weren't just given Mm -hmm. the book of Ecclesiastes. We were given Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, we've been given some of the Psalms. Hmm. And maybe that's kind of what mm-hmm. is happening here is more of a complete picture. Mm-hmm. They're meant to yeah. be read together. That's good. So how does Ecclesiastes specifically, as we kind of close in on the end of this conversation, how does Ecclesiastes help us paint the rest mm-hmm. of that picture of wisdom? It's a great question about, you know, did Jesus ever say life is meaningless? He did represent the emptiness of our efforts by ourselves. And maybe that's what Ecclesiastes is showing, is the puff of air, puff of smoke, uh, chasing the wind kind of concept that no matter how hard we try, we're going to end up in a futile reality without the help that God gives us. Mm -hmm. I think he also puts forth some really difficult questions. We've already mentioned a few of them in the first parts of our conversation. So one of them that came up was, why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? That's Hevel. That's something I can't get my mind around. So by reminding us of those realities, it forces us to process that and deal with it and not Mm -hmm. just act like those questions don't exist. It's a helpful role that Ecclesiastes plays. Yeah, and the the bigger picture shows too that that there's an enemy who is constantly trying to give God a bad name, a bad reputation, and is sowing mayhem throughout the world. Mm-hmm. So bad stuff really does happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That apart from God's perspective is going to mm-hmm. leave us with the impression it really doesn't make any sense to try to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's a whole nother angle too that we haven't even talked about much yet, which is the book of Ecclesiastes presents to us almost all of the things that we typically try to find meaning and purpose and identity in, in this world. You know what? If I had enough money, I would be happy. You know what? If I could experience this pleasure, then I will finally be fulfilled. If I could reach this status, then life is finally going to start going the way that I expect. 
And what we discover as Ecclesiastes goes through each of those and systematically destroys any hope we have of finding meaning and purpose in those things is he's mm-hmm. setting us up to find true meaning and purpose in God. And so maybe, Daniel, the answer to Mart's earlier question is not all is meaningless. It's all is meaningless apart from God, mm-hmm. who is the only one that can give meaning to it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I think one of the primary roles that the book of Ecclesiastes is going to play in the rest of our series as we look at different sections of the book is we're going to find out that it pokes a lot of holes in things that we try to find meaning and purpose. It's going to poke holes in our expectations of how we think God should work. It's going to poke holes in a lot of things that we need holes poked in. And as a result of that, it's going to set us up to maybe hear the truth of what God offers and how we can find true meaning and purpose in Him. I'm going to direct this question to Elisa and Mark first, because I feel like I already know Bill's answer, but maybe I'm wrong. We'll find out in a second. Do you like to know who directs a movie before you see it? Yeah, it wouldn't make much difference to me because I don't follow that kind of stuff too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny. We tend to follow the stars, you know, the actors and actresses more than the directors. But of course, if it's Steven Spielberg, doesn't Mm -hmm. that grab your attention? Or Ron Howard? Doesn't that grab your attention? Because they they have this body of work that represents a certain kind of storytelling. So yeah. if it's a lesser known one... Mm. But you're leaning into Bill's answer now, I'll bet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill, you can now respond. For me, a lot of times it doesn't really matter. But if especially if it's an older film, if it's a Western directed by John Ford... Mm-hmm. I know that he's going to really show the vistas of Monument Valley and some of those places out west to go not quite that far back. I think one of the greatest directors of all time was David Lean, Mm -hmm. who influenced Steven Spielberg and so many others. And he did films like Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago and Bridge on the River Kwai, I think. Mm -hmm. And you just know that if you see a David Lean movie, there are going to be times in it when as a human being, you're going to feel very, very small Mm -hmm. because the scenery is so big. And speaking of that, think about the biblical epics that were costumed by Cecil B. DeMille or something, you know, just amazing. You could expect Mm -hmm. this epic telling. Yeah. And I think, you know, even the big names that we've mentioned We didn't know who they were before that first movie, right? Like even the Steven Spielbergs, you had to go see a Steven Spielberg movie to then think, you know what, if he does another one, I want to see that. As we continue our conversation on Ecclesiastes, I want to invite us to kind of approach it like we do a movie for the most part, which is we don't really know who the director is behind the scenes, who's pulling it all together. And for some of us, we have expectations of what we think about how the book of Ecclesiastes came to be or who wrote it. But I'd invite all of us just to kind of try to approach it with a blank slate and act like we don't know anything and see where we end up. Because I think what we'll discover is that regardless of who the director is behind the scenes, this is something that has been really meaningful and something that as a result that we want to engage with, we want to watch again to play on the movie reference. And along with that, one of the things that I've been learning this last year, especially from you all and from some of the people that we've had on Discover the Word, is oftentimes we in the West are more concerned with who a biblical author is than the Bible's concerned with telling us who it is. 
And I think that's because, you know, when we go to a bookstore back in the day or on Amazon now, I guess, <laughs> and we're looking for a book, we want to know, is this person credible? Like, can mm-hmm. I trust what I'm getting ready to read from this person? So we actually put a lot of emphasis on who an author is ahead of time. But the Bible, many of these works were passed down orally for generations. When they finally were written down, they were still considered trustworthy because of the content, because they had been passed down or received as true from God, and because God had preserved them in some way. But when we read the Bible, we don't Google, like, where did Isaiah go to seminary to see if we can figure out if we can trust Isaiah or not. And so sometimes the Bible is a little more anonymous with authors than we would like it to be in the West. And I think we'll see that a little bit as we continue to dig into Ecclesiastes. So to get into the conversation, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Lisa, if you could read that for us. Sure. Okay. The words of the teacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Or as we're learning to say this week, hevel hevelim, right? Smoke or vapor or puff of air. Everything is a puff of air. So in that first verse, the words of the teacher, the son of David, who's writing at that point? Is the teacher writing? Oh, some scribe is recording the words of the teacher. Yeah, so someone else is writing down the words for us. Let's skip to chapter 12 and look at verses 8 through 10, and this really comes out a lot more clear. Bill, would you read that for us? Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Yeah, so that's pretty helpful, because who's writing there? Again, it seems like it's a scribe. Yeah, and they're kind of describing a little bit about who this teacher was and the types of things that this teacher or preacher did. So the first conclusion we can draw from at least those two sections is that someone other than the teacher is writing down the words. So there's some narrator that's pulling Ecclesiastes together. Is that fair? But could it also be that they have this collection of things that the teacher wrote and the scribe is only writing the beginning and the ending to context that? Mm. Is yeah. that possible? Yeah, very possible. And I think that's something to keep in the back of our mind as we're thinking through who the author might be. The next word I think would be worth jumping into is the word teacher, because Bill, in your translation, it said preacher. Mm-hmm. In the Hebrew, it's a word kohelet, which means one who assembles. And then there's this question of like, wait a second, the book is called Ecclesiastes. Where does that come from? And Mm -hmm. so uh, the first question, so the Hebrew word kohelet is one who assembles. So the question is, well, what is this person assembling? Maybe Proverbs, to Bill's point, maybe drawing people to an assembly, which is kind of the word preacher, where that kind of plays off of. So they've assembled all these people to hear what they have to say. The word Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word ecclesiastes, meaning assembly. And that may ring some bells in any other nerdy people like me who are like, wait a <laughs> second, is that the same word for the church in the New Testament? Yeah. Which it is. Ecclesia, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. ecclesia. Yeah. So it's the same word. Yeah, it's the same root word there. So this okay. assembly, this gathering. And so the translation, again, preacher kind of plays off that a little bit of like this person is speaking to a gathering. And sorry to go in the weeds a little bit here, but I find this fascinating, so I'm just going to go for it. The root word for kohelet or teacher is kahal, 
which is the word for assembly in Hebrew, just like ecclesiastes is in Greek. And when the author changes it to kohelet, they're following a example that we see in other parts of scripture to describe the office of something. So for example, in Ezra, there's this word sophereth, which comes from the Hebrew root word for scribe, and it represents the office of the scribe in the kingdom of Israel. And so here it could also be referencing, this is like the teacher who represents the office of assemblies or the office of wisdom or the wisdom school. And so it could be like this collection of all this different wisdom literature that's happening in Israel, and they're kind of assembling it together. Does that make sense? I'm sorry oh, to get in the weeds. Daniel, come on I back, know. Okay, okay. All right, I'll come back now. <laughs> I'm stuck on why this book is called Ecclesiastes after, similar to the, word, the Greek word ekklesia, when it's written in Hebrew. Why didn't they use a Hebrew word for that? Yeah, so in the Hebrew Bible, it's Kohelet in Hebrew, um, but the English translations are playing off the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint. And so that's where Ecclesiastes See, comes from. now Elise is in the hot air balloon. <laughs> Not really. Right. I'm just like trying to keep up. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's jump back into the actual book of Ecclesiastes. How about that? So okay. it says okay. he's the son of David, king in Jerusalem. But, but wait a minute, Daniel. What was your point? What were you, what were you with all the detail? Yeah, so the book is called Assembly, All right. right? the assembly, and this is a teacher who teaches to assemblies all okay. the wisdom of Israel. So that's okay. where we get to from that. Okay. And he's the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So how many sons of David were king in Jerusalem? Well, doesn't that depend on how you use the word son? Because yeah. sometimes son can be used kind of metaphorically as a descendant, yep. but sometimes it's an actual son of a person. So if you use actual son of a person, David only had one son, and that was Solomon. If you're talking about descendants, then it was many more. So that helps us as we're reading this. We shouldn't just assume we know who that son is because that phrase can be used in different ways. But don't we always assume it is Solomon? We do, often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. let's kind of maybe test that for a minute. So Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12, will somebody read that for us? I've got it. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Yeah. Do you notice the past tense there? Mm-hmm. See, now mine has more of a, I have been king over mm-hmm. Jerusalem. Mm. So it seems to be, this has been going on and continues into this moment. Yeah. The Hebrew word there is in past tense. My translation says when. And so... One of the questions we asked if it was Solomon was, was there a time where Solomon was king and then wasn't king Mm. for a period? And the answer to that would be no. But that's not the only hint there, right? It would be kind of weak to just kind of lean it on that. Read chapter 1, verse 16 for us, Elisa. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Yeah, so... If it was Solomon, how many kings were before Solomon in Jerusalem? Just David. Just David. So he would be saying, I said to myself, I am like more wise. I'm surpassing all who ruled before me in Jerusalem. 
I mean, mainly just my dad, <laughs> because he would have been the only king before. And this actually gets emphasized a few times in the book. In chapter two, the teacher's describing all the amazing things that they've accomplished, all the things they've done. And he says in verse seven of chapter two, more than any who had come before me in Jerusalem. And then later he says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And so we get this emphasis on like, all. There's more. There's probably more than one. Otherwise, it's Solomon going, yeah, just mainly my dad, like I did better than him. Okay, so Daniel, what's going on here then? Yeah, so what scholars, as they've been leaning into this, there's a genre of literature in ancient times called a fictional royal biography. And Mm -hmm. a fictional royal biography is when a narrator takes on the fictitious character of someone that everyone would know, but there would be no confusing, like nobody's being deceived, right? Like they're not thinking, oh, is this really the person who's writing? It's very clear. It would be like me acting like I'm George Washington. I'm not deceiving you. You know I'm not George Washington. George Washington's been dead for many, many years, right? Or it'd be like me sitting at the table saying, you know what Haddon Robinson, like this is something Haddon Robinson would say, and then I say it. It gives more weight to what I'm saying because if it is true that it's like what Haddon said, then it has a little more authority to it. Like, oh, Daniel's Mm -hmm. speaking in the spirit of Haddon who we trust. And so we can trust what Daniel's saying. And so that's what scholars think is going on here. We have this narrator who is specifically writing somewhere around 300 BC because of the language. It's after the exile in Babylon. They see words that didn't really show up before that, or the way words are used didn't really show up before that. So like, okay, this could have been written around 300 BC. So you have this person that's like, hey, I'm inviting you to consider what it would be like to be Solomon, to be at his level of wisdom, and to consider all the things that we try to find meaning and purpose in. If we had that kind of wisdom, would life be better for us? All of those questions you can bring in. And by equating ourselves to Solomon in this fictitious scene, creating this reality, uh, it, it invites us to consider if we really would be happier or if we really would find contentment by being that wise. Now, Daniel, you said scholars say. Would it be more accurate to say some scholars say or many scholars say or most scholars say, or is this kind of a universally held thing? Because scholars say tends to imply that everybody thinks this. That's a great question. At this point, a significant number of scholars believe this is what's happening okay. in this book. Okay. And, But I think at the end of the day, it doesn't change too much the invitation that we have in Ecclesiastes. Because what Ecclesiastes is inviting us to do is to consider all the possible things that we could find meaning and purpose in. And in some ways, it's like a thought experiment. He's inviting us to think as if we were Solomon. Well, maybe if I had more money, I would be happier. Well, Solomon had all the money in the world and ended up writing about how he wasn't happier. Or maybe if I was just smarter or had more knowledge or was more wise, maybe then I would finally discover the purpose for life. And what they find is that all of those things fall short. And to me, I think what was most fascinating as I thought about that is if this truly was the last book written in the Old Testament, then that means that even this person has watched the empire come and go. They've watched 
Israel become a great nation and then fall apart. They've come out of the exile. Even their religious ideas of how they assumed God was supposed to work, all of a sudden they're left questioning even those things. And so what Ecclesiastes really does is it puts us in this moment in Israel's history where they are wanting, they're needing something more. They're longing for this Messiah to come. And the book ends with what we talked about in a few conversations ago, fear God and keep the commandments, because that's all they had left. But even that feels like a surprising ending because he just spent the whole book talking about whether that really is going to bring purpose or not. So I think the invitation by considering who the author is or isn't, isn't really about whether it's Solomon or not, but it's really about what our expectations are about where we'll find meaning and purpose. And the invitation is to consider that even if we had everything that we think would be great, what we'll find is that we still need Jesus in the end. Okay. And Daniel, if that is the case as to authorship, does that affect its inspiration? The fact that God was was breathing himself into this. Yeah. I mean, the truth is we will probably never know for sure who the author of Ecclesiastes is, especially because the Bible didn't feel was important enough to make that clear. It never says these are the words of Solomon or these are the words of so-and-so. But like the director, we didn't know before going to the movies. This book is incredible, and it's why we're still talking about it today. And specifically, I want to bring attention to what scholars are talking about now, because if it's true, if it's the most recently written book in the Old Testament, that alone tells a story in and of itself. We get to the end and we still feel this hole in our chest. We feel this despair. We feel hopelessness because if all that's left is fearing God and keeping his commandments, we're all sunk. There's not a better book in the Old Testament that paints the picture of why we need Jesus. There's not a better picture of why Jesus was the new that the world needed. If you think about it in Ecclesiastes, it says there's nothing new under the sun. And then Jesus shows up and said, I have come to make all things new. And we'll actually talk about that at the very end of the series. But for now, I hope this just serves as a reminder to me because a lot of this was new to me. And to all of us that this is a very special book, not because Solomon wrote it or didn't write it, but because it echoes with the deepest longings in our hearts. Mm -hmm. We continue to try to find things, including religious things, to fulfill us and make us happy, but they all fall short of what Jesus offers. doing a survey of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes on the Discover the Word podcast right now. And so a necessary part of this study is the discussion about authorship that we had just a moment ago. It's a book that raises questions in so many ways, and this is one of them. But as we're going to find, even this is going to point us to Jesus in amazing ways. And you know, I think this book raises questions because in so many ways it deals with questions and speaks into the skeptical, difficult things that challenge our faith in God in our world today. Because these questions and struggles are definitely not a modern problem that we have only. And so to end this first half of our look at Ecclesiastes, Daniel wants us to return to this key idea of Hevel. He's going to find a fascinating connection to the beginning of Genesis and the first family. So let's listen. Are you willing to share about a time when you truly questioned just about everything? (laughs) So life, 
God, purpose, meaning. The reason I ask even with a little bit of a laugh is because I feel like maybe it's just me as a millennial, but I ask these questions a lot. And the other reason I ask too is because if we're going to really take the book of Ecclesiastes seriously, we need to join the author in feeling what he feels, that sometimes life just doesn't line up. So are there any moments like that that come to mind for you? You know, there's not moments. It's like there's huge patterns. You know, (laughs) when I think of myself, you know, early on as a student and then as a husband, as a father, as a parent, as an employee, you know, what part of it went the way that I hoped it would go? Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't. And any number of times I could sit with sections of Ecclesiastes and say it just didn't work. Mm -hmm. I think from my perspective, it's been a a growing and I hope maturing realization that life is not all about me. (laughs) (laughs) And we've had a lot of moments talking about this just as we've shared our stories, but also as we've shared how to read scripture. And in the West, we read it so individualistically, whereas in the East, it's read more communally. We just are so individualistic and isolated. And for me, understanding that I am a part of a whole and what I experience in life is a lot because of where and when I was born on this planet. That's a very humbling realization. And I don't know if that's what you're getting at at all, but that's been something that's been um, a process for me. What about you, Bill? Yeah, I can think of a couple of moments, Daniel, when I just kind of sat down on the floor and just wept Mm -hmm. just because nothing was making any sense and life was such a a struggle at that time that it just didn't seem like there was any place to turn where I felt like I could get the answers that I needed. Not mm-hmm. ne- not necessarily the answers I wanted, but the answers that I needed. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard in those moments to not give in to just despair mm-hmm. and to wonder if we've lost sight of something, if we're crazy, if we're just missing, like, those times can be so confusing, especially as believers where we have expectations of how we think God will work and what he'll do. And then when things happen differently than we expect, it can throw us. And a lot of those situations that you all are describing are very painful seasons too. And oftentimes seasons of questioning comes out of seasons of pain. But those are also some of the most important times for growth, aren't they? Seasons Mm -hmm. of questioning. Sure. I read this quote about the book of Ecclesiastes, and I thought it was helpful. This is by George Bernanos, and it says, In order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. And I think that really captures the spirit of what Ecclesiastes is helping us do, which is to ask the big questions about when life doesn't add up. There are so many things in our lives that we try to find meaning and hope and purpose in, and many of those fall short. And sometimes we need to lose hope in those things so that we can find true hope where true hope comes from. And I think that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is helping us do. So this week, we're going to end by revisiting an idea that we talked about at the very beginning, which is that word hevel, hevel hevelim, hokal hevel, right? This idea of smoke or vapor, this word that shows up 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. These are the ideas that shape this idea of hevel is the idea that shapes the whole book. And in order to do that, I want to take kind of a surprising turn and jump to a different passage of scripture that I think perfectly illustrates this idea of hevel 
This is Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and we can just read the first part of verse 2. But listen for the word hevel there. Elisa, would you read that for us? Sure. Now the man knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother, Abel. So, Mart, did you catch the word hevel in there? (laughs) Vanity, meaningless, futility? I missed it, sir. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm going to give you a hint. Each name in this is pretty important. So, Eve means life. Adam means of the earth, right? Remember, God created the man of the earth and then breathed life into him. Cain means produced or spear. And then here's hint number two. Notice how Eve explains what Cain's name means. What does she say about Abel explaining his name? Just nothing. Nothing. Next, she bore Abel. Uh Abel is the Hebrew word hevel. What? So the name Abel is just a... Englishified version of the Hebrew word hevel, which means vanity or smoke. What what do you take from that? (laughs) So I'm going to read a quote. When I read this for the first time, it blew my mind. This is from Bruce Waltke. Adam and Eve named their son hevel. Vapor died prematurely. His life was fleeting. Without progeny or monument, without gaining advantage, And apart from faith, his life and death are senseless. If one reflects on Abel's life under the sun, it was hevel. It was absurd. Hmm. Well, it was certainly a vapor because it appeared for a little time and then vanished away. So that part of it certainly makes sense. And there was no lineage from him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to be killed by his older brother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Senseless. We have lost Mm -hmm. potential. We have lost Mm -hmm. life. We have a premature death. Right? Mm-hmm. Why would a young man die is one of the questions that we struggle with to this day. Right? Why would his older brother murder him? That's Hevel. That's something we can't get our minds around, why this would happen. In our first conversation on Hevel, do you remember the two main ways that the word was used in the book of Ecclesiastes? One was fleeting, which we just talked about. What was the second one? Do you remember? Was it chasing the wind? It's kind of like chasing the wind. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a Futility. second. Futility. Yeah, futility or uh, also like an enigma or a paradox. We can't get our mind around what's happening. Mm -hmm. What is one of the primary things that we deal with today that none of us can get our minds around? And it's often the death of a child, Mm. right? That is something that whenever we run into that, regardless of the circumstances, we Mm. go, why? Mm. Why would that happen? And there's never a good answer. It Mm. seems senseless. It's hevel, right? That's a vapor. I can't get my mind around it. And so if you think about the story of Abel, you see both of these examples, the fleeting nature of Hevel and also this enigma of I can't get my mind around why these types of things happen in the world. And they're both kind of represented in Mm. him. And so I want to take that with us as we revisit another phrase in Ecclesiastes that continues to explain this word Hevel for us. And that's the phrase, Elisa, you just mentioned, it's this chasing after the wind Or most translations will have a note in there that says it could also be translated feeding on wind. So we're going to think about both of those. Mm. Would you read Elisa Ecclesiastes 1.14 for us? Sure. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is vanity, Hevel, and a chasing after the wind. 
you know, chasing after the wind. Those phrases, all is vanity, all is hevel, and chasing after the wind often go together throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And if we think about Abel's life, what a picture mm-hmm. of vanity, of this just doesn't make sense. When we think about the phrase chasing wind, what kind of comes to mind? How does that help us understand this idea? The futility of it. I mean, the impossibility yeah. of catching it. Yeah, you can't catch it. It's always out ahead of mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. right? You're yeah. trying to get to it, but you can't ever get to it. I think about the dog chasing the car, and you wonder what would he ever do with that <laughs> car if he ever caught it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. there's no way he's going to catch that car. Yeah. It's beyond him, but in a similar way, grasping for the wind or trying to catch the wind what would you do with it if you caught it? Mm-hmm. I mean, what value would there be in that? Yeah. I think what the meaning here is more of just reach your hands out right now and try to grab hold of the space in front of you. That's mm-hmm. the futility of it. It's mm-hmm. impossible to just grab it. Yeah. yeah. And how does it help nuance it when we think of not only chasing on the wind, but feeding on wind? It's almost if you try to eat your breath, you know, yeah. and be satisfied. It doesn't mm-hmm. truly feed you. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And you've talked a couple of times in these conversations, Daniel, about how so many of the things that the teacher or the person whose wisdom we're looking at in Ecclesiastes tried so many different avenues to find fulfillment, to find satisfaction. And he keeps saying over and over again, it's just not there. That's not where to find it. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly right. The teacher tried to increase knowledge and wisdom to find meaning Mm -hmm. and purpose. And he found out that it was hevel. It was trying to feed on the wind. He tried pursuing every pleasure to find happiness. He threw the most amazing party you can think of. But guess what? Monday still came and he had to go back to work. It was hevel and feeding on the wind. He tried building amazing things, collecting wealth to find happiness and purpose. And that was just hevel. It was trying to feed on the wind. It just didn't bring satisfaction. And then just like when we talk about the story of Abel, he ran into these unanswerable questions, these questions that just don't have good answers. Why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? Why do the fool and the wise both end up dead in the grave? What is the point of all this? The answers to all these questions are hevel. They're trying to feed on the wind. And my invitation to all of us would be as we prepare for our next time together and as we do part two of this series, think about what those questions are that you can bring with you. What are the questions, the assumptions, the expectations? What are some of the maybe frustrations in your life that you're dealing with that you have? What are some of those unmet expectations? Where do you think you'll find happiness? Think about some of those things and join us as we join Ecclesiastes in asking some of those questions. And to end our time today, I want to read a quote by Robert L. Short, because he just says it better than I ever could. It says, It is telling and ironic that theology has gone so far afield in looking for the answer to this question, what is modern man? When all the while there stands the very prototype of modern man and of all places, the Bible. For the questions and doubts of Ecclesiastes are easily identified as our questions and doubts. His method of seeking an answer is our method. Think about the scientific method. What do we see, touch, feel, taste? He's going to lean into that a lot. And his despair has led him down the same blind alleys in which we have so often lost our way. Therefore, we of today are fortunate to have in the Bible such an eloquent and forceful spokesman 
for our ways of looking at things. Today we are skeptics and sophisticates and relentless seekers for truth. But compared with Ecclesiastes, we are all amateurs in these pursuits. He has out-skepticed and out-sophisticated and out-sought the best of us. For these and more reasons, Ecclesiastes is for us today, the truest of all the Bible's books. And again, that was a quote by Robert L. Short. And we're going to explore how that might be the case next time. An important first half of our study about the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, some key building blocks that will serve us well as we get into part two of our survey of this different kind of wisdom literature in our next podcast. Because uh, we've got a lot more to discover about how the message of Ecclesiastes fits into the message of the Bible and actually points to Jesus. One of the most quoted verses from Ecclesiastes, it's on plaques, all that, I'm going to have Bill read it for us, is Ecclesiastes 1.9. Will you read that for us? What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. And doesn't that do a great job of just summarizing all that we've talked about so far? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, under the sun, there's that theme, right? What if what we see is all there is? So here's what's interesting, though. The way that we often quote that verse, I think, is inaccurate for the story of the Bible. And here's why. Mark, will you read mm-hmm. Revelation 21, verse 5 for us? Looking to the big throne, right? And the mm-hmm. one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. Oftentimes people quote, Oh, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, when Jesus showed up, a whole lot of new happened. <laughs> yeah, don't miss part two of this study of Ecclesiastes on our next podcast. Well, this is the Discover the Word podcast with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Now we're grateful that you chose to make Discover the Word part of your day. We pray that these conversations will help you to mature in your faith as we study God's Word together. And it's thanks to the faithful support from friends like you that this small group Bible study is possible. If you'd like to partner with us to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible, available to people searching for answers to the big questions in life. Uh, Please give a donation when you go online to discovertheword.org. Click the Donate tab. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministry.